0: Go ahead and say your name and what you'd like to be doing in the next 10 years.
1: <laughs> in the next 10 years.
0: Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine, imagine a robot the classroom of the future?
1: We'll have the a, a the robot future. <laughs>
0: or, let's yeah. say have a robot future.
1: We'll have a robot
0: future. We'll have a robot future. This is not your first one. interactive. We're in international. we their current project in the future. How to design a global Escape velocity. Have you ever wondered how science that changes the world happens? How insulin or penicillin was discovered? How life-changing science gets from the lab to change the world in unpredictable ways? Oftentimes, scientists think of big world challenges, something that's gonna impact millions of people, but what about when they become the research?
1: She was doing research in that field, and it was very difficult even for her to get this all to happen.
2: You know, if I really believe it, and this is like standard that almost no researcher has, I have to believe it enough to bet my life on it, right?
3: Shirley Pepke, a research scientist at Caltech, had spent her whole professional life studying genetic data. She never thought she would be analyzing her own genetic information to save her life. This is a story of how Shirley used the power of big data to
2: fight her own cancer. I knew something very terrible was wrong. I'd been going to various doctors because I had different symptoms. Honestly, the doctors looked at me and thought, oh, you're just gaining weight, you're being unrealistic. I don't know what they were thinking. When I finally went to my doctor and and I I just called and I said, I'm having these symptoms, I need to be seen immediately. I had an abdomen full of... um, Six liters of ascites, which is cancerous fluid. My abdomen just inflated. And when he saw, his comment was, and I still can't believe this, because he's a very good doctor and a very nice guy, but I think it just stunned him. And his, the first words out of his mouth were, wow, that really is a lot of, lot of fluid. You, you really aren't making this up.
0: A young scientist at the top of her career, raising two young children, surely got the worst possible news of her life. It was ovarian cancer. And it was late stage.
2: So the five-year survival rate at late stage, which stage three or four, is around 30 percent or less. Once it's diagnosed, then the treatments are just very limited. If they can't get rid of it surgically, there's a very tiny fraction of women who will be cured by chemotherapy because they have certain genetic profiles. But apart from that, the chemotherapy is just a delay tactic. My daughter had just turned three, my son was nine. I thought I was only going to to live three years at the time. It's just really hard, you know, to think about your kids growing up without you. And so I was just super motivated to push farther than, you know, the typical researcher who's, you know, sitting there wanting to be helpful, but they don't have that sense of urgency.
3: Everyone who has ovarian cancer gets the same frontline treatment. Basically, it's chemotherapy drugs that are meant to attack the cancer full on and in the process, kill everything in their path, even your healthy cells.
0: What's worse, it doesn't cure most people. Most of the time, the cancer comes back within the first two years after treatment.
2: So they know that most women with ovarian cancer will respond to the frontline treatment of the platinum and taxane. But when the cancer comes back, uh, many of them will not respond or will only have a partial response they'll start to respond and then stop responding so now they need to pick a different drug and there's no second line drug that works for most people and then there are clinical trials right that you might want to enter and so how do you decide and right now there's basically there's almost no information so most women honestly they have to choose without knowing how aggressive their cancer is without knowing its resistance profile without knowing how the toxicities of any of these drugs will affect them, and they're really toxic. It's like throwing darts at a dartboard. You pick a drug, you hope that it works a little bit, and you hope that the toxicity isn't bad for you. And you iterate on that until you get to the end of the line, which usually happens fairly quickly. Shirley did the standard frontline treatment, but the doctors weren't talking
3: to the standard patient. Shirley lives and breathes data. She looks at information differently from the rest of us. If she could get the right data, then maybe she could see
2: something that doctors weren't seeing. In 2011, the Cancer Genome Atlas had published the first genome-wide expression and mutation data sets along with some other information for ovarian cancer. So that really spurred me to go to the next step, which is to see what I could figure out from the data that was out there. And I realized that there weren't no adequate tools for analyzing this high-throughput data.
0: To put it in perspective, we've been fighting cancer as a nation since 1971, when Richard Nixon declared war on cancer.
1: The time has come
0: in America when the same kind of concentrated effort that split the atom and took man to the moon should be turned toward conquering this dread disease. But it's only until recently that we actually knew what the genes were that drove cancer. For instance, in the 1960s, doctors and scientists were debating whether or not mutations of cells were even relevant to cancer. There was a Nobel Prize as a result of a discovery that was made in the 1970s that revealed we have genes inside us that might be cancer-causing. So until just a few years ago, we only knew about the tip of the iceberg. Then, in the mid-1980s, we began to identify some of those genes. And now as a result of the Human Cancer Genome Atlas, the most ambitious genome project in the history of life sciences, started back in 2007, Shirley had close to the periodic table for cancer.
2: I just thought, well, whatever I can do, I have to do. It's, it's really not even a choice. And so I'm going to take all this data that no one else knows how to look at. And this was my field, so it was not an unreasonable thing to do. And I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to figure out what I can with help.
0: The help she was looking for was not too far away. Her friend Christina Lerman at USC's Information Sciences Institute connected Shirley to Greg Versteeg, who was known in machine learning circles for developing Corex, or correlation explanation. Greg's signature algorithm, which he had used to extract hidden factors and data in anything from mapping brain signals to online dating sites and solving gang-related crimes.
3: Shirley acted quickly. She was already part of a research protocol with the Translational Genomics Research Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. This wasn't some mail-order transaction. Shirley knew the researchers at TGen were rigorous and focused on applying their research to make impact. Not only did they give her the data she needed, but they also did their own full analysis of Shirley's tumor. She could then send that data to Greg, who would then train Corex to find those hidden factors that might save her life
1: first step there is to to get all these measurements taken. You get this gene expression profile. You take a piece of your tumor and they, they say, okay, so what are, what are all the molecules that are being sent around in this tumor? And that's unique to every person, right? So there's hundreds of thousands of numbers that she got in the mail after she had sent in her tumor for analysis that say, what's the exact signature that represents your specific tumor?
0: Let's stop for a second to explain what the difference is between DNA and gene expression.
3: Yeah, Greg explains it really well.
1: So your DNA doesn't change over your life. You can imagine your DNA as like the software for a computer, right? So it's it's the code, and now when you boot up your computer, it starts running the code, right? But it does different things at different times. There's different parts of the program. So you might open your email, and that means a different part of the code is now running. What gene expression is doing is sort of telling you. What parts of the code are running right now? So even though your DNA doesn't change, your gene expression changes constantly. And it's even different in different parts of your body. How things look in your skin cells or your heart cells and how they look in cancer cells is, again, totally, totally different.
2: And so over the next several months, there was we just started developing a back and forth about what things could be done to improve the algorithm, to specifically look at biological data in a way that most current tools out there aren't capable of doing.
0: Shirley kept sending Greg gene expression data and notes on how he could improve Corex. This wasn't research that was happening in a lab. It wasn't funded by anyone, and it wasn't done to add another line to someone's CV. It was happening in coffee shops, through email exchanges, text messages, and phone calls in the middle of Shirley's intense chemotherapy. They were just two physics PhDs that wanted to make order out of chaos, and they also got each other's jokes
2: Um, Let's see. Oh. Okay, here's here's a good Greg joke. Dear Shirley, whatever. He sends some technical stuff and then says, I hope your chemo is going well. The story is almost becoming a cliche, but I'm glad you don't mind conforming to the stereotypes. Physicist gets disease, switches field, finds cure. In one of these exchanges, and we're talking about the science of all this, I say... I will look at it as soon as I can. As of right now, I'm getting chemotherapy at UCLA. So I was literally with my laptop, sitting in a confusion chair at UCLA, responding to these emails saying, oh, this is great. Thanks for all this data. I'll look at it when I feel normal. (laughs) Greg responds, hi, Shirley. I'm glad to hear things went well. I was going to wish you a quick recovery, but then thought better of it. Quick is too goal oriented. Instead, I'll wish you a monotonic recovery. May you feel as healthy or healthier each day than the day before? Strict monotonicity is not required. Also, the monotonicity property is clearly timescale dependent for purposes of positive outlook, which seems to be beneficial. and may be required to coarse grain at a different scale. I feel that when everyone sees the logic of this benediction, it will really catch on.
3: <laughs> Moments like these help them work through the problems as the data sets
2: got more complex, and Shirley's cancer progressed. I looked at my data and I looked at what we had learned from the cancer geomalice data using Greg's algorithm and there were some very clear signals there like the fact that women whose immune systems were activated in certain ways had better long-term survival.
1: Now if Shirley wants to know what she should do for herself she needs to get the same gene expression profiles extracted but she'd better do it in exactly the same way Otherwise, she won't be able to compare to these other studies. And that turned out to be the most difficult part about it is that every lab has a different set of protocols. So, you know, when they say, oh, this is the measurement for the gene XYZ17, you know, another lab might measure it in a different way. And the number doesn't mean the same thing. So you better not interpret XYZ17 as a good sign when actually it's a bad sign or vice versa.
2: I was able to see that there were specific gene expression profiles that were associated with the immune response. So I looked at my gene expression data, and we hadn't yet fully developed the tools we needed to do the full analysis. But just based upon that information, I looked at particular markers based upon expression in, in my profile, and they were just off the charts. And so I thought, well, what I need to do, my only hope really is I need to attack it from this immune system angle. And there's no drugs approved for that for ovarian cancer. You know, if i really believe it, and this is like standard that almost no researchers has, I have to believe it enough to bet my life on it, right?
0: Shirley took her findings to a research oncologist who was open to immunotherapy because there were promising studies in mice.
2: But mice, really? <laughs> so who's going to act <laughs> upon that, right? Well, you know, if you give mice these checkpoint inhibitors, And at the same time, you do some sort of cytotoxic chemotherapy. Some of them look cured. Now, for a mouse, cured means they live two years, right? So it's not really, this is like, how many times have we cured cancer in mice? A lot. The point is that the response was better with both and with either one alone. For someone who's basically been given a death sentence, you feel like you need to try something. That opportunity would come up sooner than she thought. Shirley's
3: cancer came back in just 10 months it was time to take what they had learned and apply it.
2: So what I ended up doing, actually, was I did the uh, immunotherapy for a while, and then I had surgery to remove some visible tumor, and then I did cytotoxic therapy. So people were not comfortable combining these things at the time because it was so new, but I was able to do the immunotherapy, then do surgery, and then do cytotoxic therapy. And all I can say is that at first it looked like nothing was working and I was in a very bad situation. And one oncologist told me that I would never feel as good again as I did on the day I was talking to him, that I would progressively feel worse and worse either from the treatment or from the cancer. And basically I was looking at, you know, the end of my life as I knew it and chronic continuous treatment for a a year to three years until I died. The one bright spot being that I was eligible to take one new type of drug based upon my genetic profile, but there were side effects of that that concerned me. I wanted to delay it as long as possible because I was having significant side effects. I, I felt I wanted to resolve as much before I took this other new drug. And so I said, well, I'm just going to, actually, I said, I'm just going to stop chemotherapy for a while and, you know, just enjoy my summer with my kids.
0: Shirley and her husband Brian and their two children were going to be a normal family. That summer they were going to the beach, they were going to theme parks and concerts and birthday parties. She was going to make good on her dream to play the Irish fiddle.
2: Oh, you know what? There's a really good one called The Butterfly, which is kind of unusual for Irish music, but it's a jig and um, it's just kind of, it's unusual in that it's not a bar song. (laughs) It's a song about a butterfly. It's sort of an impressionistic thing. happened and that my tumor marker, which had doubled and was rising, I went away for treatment for two months and I came back and it had fallen to uh, less than half the value it had been at. And then I went back six weeks later and it was at its lowest level it had ever been at. And I had a, a scan and it was completely clear. You know, the doctors can't say exactly what happened and there are a lot of possibilities. Um, given how little we know about what's going on inside the body based upon these these tests. But the time course of events really looked like it could have been finally my immune system kicking in after responding to the checkpoint inhibitor, that there was this initial increase in my tumor marker, and then there was this long, slow drop, which is, I think, something which is typically seen when you get a response to an immunotherapy.
0: 45 years after Nixon declared war on cancer, President Barack Obama launched the Cancer Moonshot to accelerate cancer research. The initiative, led by Vice President Joe Biden, aims to make therapies like immunotherapy available to more patients.
2: Vice President Joe Biden is spearheading a series of corporate and government partnerships aimed at speeding up the national fight against cancer.
0: Imagine
1: a day, perhaps, when my grandchildren have children of their own, when the threat of cancer is a distant memory. When their children can be vaccinated for cancers as routinely as we vaccinate for measles and mumps. And other cancers can be treated and cured, made into chronic conditions.
2: Biden kicked off the effort with the Cancer Moonshot Summit at Howard University on Wednesday. Over 350 researchers, oncologists, data and technology experts, and others were present at the summit. An additional 6,000 people will join more than 270 events around the country. The goal? To harness American innovation to identify new ways to prevent, diagnose, and treat cancer.
0: Equally important is to match the right drugs with the right patient. Every cancer is different. Every patient's cancer has a different constellation of alterations. And we need the right combination of drugs to elicit durable responses like the one Shirley is experiencing right now.
2: I think that going outside the box really helped me, given the situation I was in. And now, even if I have to go back into treatment, I think I would choose the same thing, to push on that side or or get my tumor reprofiled with the recurrent tumor, and go from there, because we know that retreating with the same drugs is almost always a losing battle. So I think it it has really made a difference. You know, when I'm here, it will be in September, it will be three years since diagnosis, and I haven't had chemotherapy since over a year ago in June. I, I don't feel like I have cancer. I still have cancer. And it will probably rear up its ugly head sooner rather than later, but I've had an amazing year of really good health you know, that's worth a lot.
3: The National Cancer Institute reported that over 21,000 women were diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2015 alone. Shirley has become a full-time advocate and changed the entire direction of her research. She continues to work with Greg on how gene expression data can be used to match women with ovarian cancer with the appropriate treatments.
2: Cancer, when it recurs, doesn't actually have a very good prognosis generally. And I know a lot of women who are not that old, who are you know, in their 40s with young children and, um, you know, and they're in bad shape and they've run out of treatment options and the treatments aren't working for them anymore. So would it really be so harmful to try something for them that they know is relatively safe because it's approved in other cancers, right?
0: There are a few impediments that are real, and one issue is the sharing of data. She found that a lot of doctors and researchers are reluctant to share information. There's also the problem that we just don't have enough patient data. It's not readily available.
3: And one final note. When we spoke to Shirley, she wanted to be clear. She wanted to tell anyone listening a sort of, don't do this at home. She can't make clinical recommendations. If you are considering following a similar path, Shirley suggests that you find a molecular or precision oncology group and ask for tumor profiling, telling them you've heard of gene expression networks. On a more personal note, I'd like to dedicate this podcast to Ina Salski, Anita Citron, and Lori Trainer.
0: This episode of Escape Velocity was produced by Daniel Druhora and Amy Blumenthal. Original music was written and performed by Willa Brumbach, and our sound engineer is Ryan Stewart. Executive producers are Adam Smith and Michael Chung. I'm your host, Daniel Druhora.
3: And I'm Amy Blumenthal from the USC Viterbi School of Engineering. See you next time.